Hello and welcome to the O&M Stockroom. We're your hosts, Brian McGarry and Ken O'Malley. Tonight is episode 25 of Complimentary Cinema. If you are new to the channel, Complimentary Cinema is a program where we review and discuss films that you can watch for free that are available on YouTube. Please be warned that we discuss these films in detail, so consider this a full spoiler alert. And uh, I believe tonight was uh, my turn to pick. Uh... And Ken, how, how do we pick these films? We judge all of these films by three criteria. Uh, the first is, is the film well-written? The second is, is the film well-acted? And of course, the third is, is the film well-produced? And those are the answers we tried to answer in this podcast. And uh, what is tonight's film? Tonight's film is The Fourth Floor from 1999. Uh, directed by John Klausner, who also wrote it. That was his uh, directorial debut. And uh, the short version is that it's a, a bit of a thriller. And uh, let's see. So our, let's talk about our cast of characters here. So we have uh, Juliette Lewis as Jane Emmelin, William Hurt as Greg Harrison, Shelley Duvall as Martha Stewart, not the famous one, Austin Pendleton as Mr. Collins, Tobin Bell as the locksmith, Artie Lang as Jerry, and then just a bunch of people nobody cares about as uh, minor background characters. Uh, the, I would say Robert Costanzo. As the exterminator? Yeah, he was gold. Yes. But otherwise, yes. But otherwise, yeah. So, uh, so Ken, why don't you lay the, uh, lay the scene for us? So we start the film off with there's a, a weatherman uh, who is, you know, we see an ad that is for him apparently. And it turns out his girlfriend is uh, an interior designer. And the beginning scene is just kind of them living their, their, their life. Um, I don't know how else to describe it. They're, they're going out. They're just talking. They're walking around an old neighborhood that the weatherman grew up in. And he was like, I used to walk down the street to go to school. And she shows off her uh, her dead Aunt Cecilia's uh, brownstone apartment in New York City. And where she reveals to her boyfriend, Greg, Mr. William Hurt, that uh, she wants to move into it. Because she can get in for the low, low price in 1999, mind you, of $400. Which is, uh, even, you know, by any standards, that's pretty dirt cheap. Well, and the Greg Harrison character even says, you know, you could probably get, you know, 2000 $3,000 a month for this. So, I mean, now that would be even more astronomical. I, I wouldn't even, I couldn't even imagine what that apartment would cost. Yeah. 6000 7000 Easily. It, it's more than 10 square feet. Yeah. It has rooms. Multiple plural rooms. Plural rooms. Not just one room for 20 people. And it is technically the penthouse. It is. Te- yeah, it is because it's on the top floor. I don't it's know. On, if the, on the fifth floor. I don't know if that counts if it's only a five story building, but whatever. It's about as good as you can expect for an old, uh, cool New York building. So uh, they have a little bit of a spat because, you know, he just bought a house out in the country and he wants her to go move in with him and she wants her own space and she wants this really bitching cheap apartment. That her aunt left her. And, you know, I can kind of see where they're both are coming from. You know, she's a lot younger than him. She likes her space. She likes her freedom. 
She wants to live alone. Mr. You know, Greg Harrison is uh, moving on up in the in the weatherman world, and he wants to settle down. And he he's got Mr. Serious Face through most of this movie. And it, you just get the feeling they're in a little bit different parts of their life. Like you were saying, you know, she wants to be independent for a while. And it's not that she doesn't want to be with him. It's just she wants to live by her own rules and, you know, figure stuff out on her own for a little while. And still be in the relationship, but not necessarily live together. And Greg wants, you know, he, 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 he never says it, but you can tell he wants to get married and have kids, do the whole nine yards. Right. But with Juliette Lewis... So she moves into this, uh, she ends up moving into this apartment. There's a lot of stuff, a lot of, you know, a lot of movers help her, helping her in. And she meets, uh, what, who, who's the first neighbor? Martha. Martha. Yeah. The first neighbor is Martha Stewart, Shelley Duvall's character. It was the, the friendly, but nosy, annoying neighbor lady that I think we've all met at some point. And like the persistent person that like she invites herself in, you know, she's commenting about all of the stuff in the apartment and, you know, knows getting in her business. Knows everybody's business, but also preaches the virtues of privacy. True. Which is very typical of such people. And, uh, what else? So, so that kind of sets the tone for the sorts of neighbors she's going to have. There's another neighbor that she spies on the stairwell who just kind of crouches and just scurries off like a, like a rat that you've shines light on. And uh, who who is oh and then she meets the the she meets the super of the building, Jerry, played by uh, Artie Lang, whom I'm amazed hasn't OD'd on drugs yet. But this was back when he was only moderately messed up, as opposed to full blown. But anyway, so he he shows up banging on the walls, being like, "Hey, how can you move in here? Nobody told me." And you you find out pretty quick that he's he's a special case. Never tell you exactly what's wrong with him, but he's not all there. And he's the landlord's son who lives in the basement. I mean, that's that's a comfort, right? Yeah, it, it, it's just kind of unsettling. Uh, that's the theme of all the people in this building. <laughs> in their own way, each one of them brings a little bit of strangeness. And the other, other, the other people on the second floor, it's a couple, and they're both like completely deaf. And they're always locking each other out and banging on the door and, you know. Betty, let me in. Oh, Betty. And they just take they just take turns locking each other out of the apartment. Yeah. Two keys might help with that, but that's just a suggestion. So, you know, in real life, everyone has their own quirks. The people in this movie, it's definitely dialed up a little bit. It's dialed up enough that when we started watching this, I literally thought that she got such a... Her aunt got such a good deal on the apartment because it literally was... Low-income housing for crazy people. Yeah. that That's what you think when you're just a few minutes into getting the lay of the land, so to speak. So, <laughs> so the next thing that happens is she is moving things around in the apartment as you do when you're moving in. And she... I, does it not? Do they knock first, or no? They they, they they just leave the note, right? I think they just leave the note. It's like you must be quiet. Yeah, there's just a note that's like from a typewriter, and you know it says whatever, like you know, be quiet. You know, you don't want to cause any problems. 
You don't want there to be any altercations. Yes, altercations. That was you know, we, you know, which if somebody handed left me a note like that, I I tell them to fuck off. Which is kind of her attitude with this as well. Yeah, I mean, she gets there, but for the, the beginning, she's trying to be you know civil, diplomatic you about know, it, whatever. And then uh, she ends up making more noise, trying to trying to hammer something in. That that brings another note. I can't remember exactly what that said. The next but, one was the one where it was like, uh, it was like, like, I don't remember, you know, it was, a, it was kind of like something like there's still time or like you can like, you, you have st- been, war- oh, no. So, so the second one was like, you have been warned. And then the third one was, but the second one was something like you can be for, like, the third one maybe is the one I'm thinking where it's like there can be no more forgiveness or there something was like that. No, the third one was a packet full of all kinds of lists. Oh yeah, of things that she can and cannot do in her apartment and yeah, that didn't go over well. And all of these are supposedly coming from the fourth floor apartment, uh, which is uh, occupied by a woman, an old elderly lady named Alice. And so she's trying to be nice and accommodating to this little old lady. But Alice never comes out. You never see Alice. Right. She's always just, she's a shut in and she's a little strange. She just stays in her place. So uh, our, you know, our character Jane is unable to talk to Alice or engage with Alice other than an exchange of notes. Like she, you know, she plays hey, I'm sorry on one of the notes and. Tapes it to the, you know, to the door, but can never seem to get anywhere. So another thing parallel kind of to this main story is also um, Jane is trying to get familiar with the neighborhood. So she's looking out the window across the way to the next building over. And she's kind of noticing all of the quirks of her other neighbors, you know, in the next building. So she sees like there's like the, the stoner kind of couple. Uh, Every apartment building needs an old hippie couple. There's like a, a flamboyant gay couple, and then there's just another kind of guy that always seems to be doing creepy things. It just kind of works out that way. She's kind of hanging out. Like there's a there's like a naked woman on his bed, and his hands are covered in in what appears to be blood. And, and she, he has, like she woke up, she heard screaming too with that. Yeah, with that one. And it doesn't it doesn't help either that it's Tobin Bell. From the Saw movies. Yes. It's literally Jigsaw living across from her. Not that he was Jigsaw then. Right. But but it was perfect casting. It was perfect casting. Because he just has that look. He has that look. He has that gravitas. He's he's not the kind of guy I'd want to like share an elevator with. Right. I would be uh, concerned. And like the quieter he was, the more concerned I would be. Yeah, it's like, you know. You want to play a game? <laughs> Move into the apartment building across the street. I don't know. Anyway, very well cast. And he's, you know, he because he, he's the right. What I like about Tobin Bell. He's the right amount of normal looking. But there's something not quite right with the guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In any movie I've ever seen him in. He looks on the surface at a glance like a normal human, but there's something underneath that isn't right. It's like an aura. It is. It's I, I can't really describe it because it's not necessarily 
a visual thing. Mm-hmm. You just get, the, it's the vibes. Yeah, you just know. The vibes transcend space and time and just, they get you. So she's just surrounded by kooks everywhere. Mm-hmm. There's something is wrong with everybody in her building. And like throughout this though, she, it just as a character, she is so stubborn and focused on doing this and being in this place. And she's a decorator, you know, she's an interior decorator by trade. So of course she wants it just the right way. She's very particular about the way things are. So she does have to move the furniture around. She needs to hammer things into the wall, you know. Anybody who's ever moved anywhere knows that, you know, yeah, it's a little noisy at first. Right. So, but then you have to keep asking yourself, like, at what point would you call it quits with this place? You know, your neighbor's leaving you these strange notes. The people across the way are kind of strange. Like, all this stuff is, like, building up. And you have to wonder, like, what is she, like, what's her breaking point? That's like what I kept thinking about through all of this part. Because it does slowly, steadily escalate. And a lot of it, too, is like they use kind of the classic um, horror buildups, too, where little things surprise her because she's on edge and it's not anything crazy or weird happening. It's just the little things start making her jump. And that in turn kind of, you know, it translates to you as the viewer as well, kind of through this this part. And she does meet the other neighbor who um, she's been warned about. Martha warned her that uh, Mr. Mr. Collins, Mr. Collins should not be um, associated with. And when she runs into him the first time, it turns out he's like a, like the most normal person in this whole situation. And, you know, he, he identifies with the fact that she's a collector and, you know, likes art and stuff like that. And he is too, and they have a very nice conversation. And it's like, oh, well... This other guy, you know, the the crate, the Martha Stewart lady, she must just not get along with, with him. It must be something like personal. Like obviously this guy's all right. Well, yeah, and we find out that he he was the one scurrying up the stairs a couple times before, right? Trying not to be seen. And the first time we meet him uh, up close, he's trying to hide behind a bush. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it turns out he was trying to get away from Martha. Which Shelley Duvall's character, which I absolutely understand. Yes, because by that by that point we've seen her two or three times, and she's easily one of the most irritating people you ever see. We were ready to scurry away from her. We were. I was. I was ready to scurry away from the screen every time she popped up again. Yeah. So, it, I get it. So at some point after the there's the packet. After the packet. With all the rules. And like she takes it to her friends and they think it's just crazy. Um, but she can't really do anything about it. So they have the bout where she really goes at it. Where she's trying to nail something in the wall. And the person downstairs is knocking oh, on yeah, the ceiling. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, just banging on the ceiling. And then she starts jumping up and down. And, and then uh, then she gets the, gets the note. There's no more no more warnings. Or no, no forgiveness or something. Mm-hmm. I can't. Re- there's I, a number I can't, of notes. There's there's a lot of notes. The the point is is that they escalate in in their threats, their mm-hmm. threatening nature. And the next morning, uh, she ends up slipping and tripping on the stairs and falling down the stairs. Um, a full flight of stairs because uh, the first couple uh, steps were, uh, I don't know, covered in lard or grease yeah. or something. 
And which is ironic because her Aunt Cecilia, who lived in that apartment, died by falling down the stairs. Coincidence? I don't think it was a coincidence. I don't think so either, Ken, but we don't know yet. No. But we do see a close-up of a hand literally Mm -hmm. slathering on the grease onto the stairs. So it definitely leans that way. And she like twisted her ankle, kind of. Yeah, she gets messed up. Uh, not bad, but bad enough it pisses her off. And mm-hmm. the following uh, that night, she blasts some L seven and does some like jumping jacks and. Because she's just you know she just she realizes there's nothing she can do about. Yeah, or maybe that was the night before she got greased. I can't I can't recall. It blurs together. Yeah. Maybe. We we did only watch this film once just before this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it's a smudge. Either way. But either way, so she's being childish. The downstairs neighbor is just a jerk and being more of a jerk. And uh the temperature slowly rises. Yeah, that's the part where the the tiles in the kitchen get broken by the the pounding from the under the floor. And yeah. that's, I think, the first time the police get involved. Yeah, and the police, they, they do their normal thing where they just, they show up and they're dismissive. And it doesn't help that the night she saw the neighbor across the street, Tobin Bell, or in this case, locksmith boy. You know, she saw him one night with like blood on his hands after hearing some screaming. So she, you know, tried to call 911 on him. But never really followed through with that, apparently, because Martha had to come ask for sugar in the middle of the the night. I've had neighbors like that, too. And so the police are just, okay, so you already were going to complain about somebody else, and you didn't follow through with that. And you're just going to, you know, so like, yeah, it's busted, busted pipes. Call your landlord. Oh. And then the beauty of all that is like everything where the answer would be like something normal. Like there's a reason why it's not the answer. Like the super is not reliable. No. You know, first of all, um, you know, the neighbor she saw, we don't know whether anything happened there or not, but we just have to assume that everything was fine. But everything else is unsettling. Um, there's there's the part right after that too. Like she sees the neighbor, you know, calls 911 and then, and chickens out on it or, you know, just doesn't go through with it. Then she finds that her lock has been messed with on her door. And she has to call a locksmith to come fix it. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that the, the neighbor she thought was creepy is the locksmith. Yes. So he comes and replaces her lock. And it turns out that he keeps the keys for all the people in the building. Because the super guy can't be trusted with the keys. The guy who can't be trusted with the keys is Artie Lang, a.k.a. Jerry. I wouldn't trust Artie Lang with keys in real life, much less playing a special needs super who uh, basically threatened to steal her keys the, the first day that she uh, moved in. Yeah. It's a little unstable. But like at this point, like you can't trust the locksmith neighbor. You can't trust the super. You can't trust any of the other individual neighbors. You can't. Yeah, you certainly don't want to go to Martha for help. You can't trust the police. Can't trust. You can't count on the police. Her her boyfriend Greg is is butthurt that she won't move in with him. Right. So he's just he wants to use all of this as an excuse for her to leave. And he's you know and 
you know, a couple times that, you know, they get together, he gets a little emo. He gets a little emo. The first night she tells him uh, about the uh, wanting to move into that place, she kind of sprung it on him and he's, he takes that pretty personally. And I can't remember another instance, but he, he walks off and gets a cab and cancels dinner. That was the first near the beginning. Yeah. Um, and then he, when they have dinner in the house and they're, you know, they're drying the dishes and that was a big thing. He was drying the dishes the wrong way because she's so particular about everything. And, you know, he said, what are we doing here? Like we're playing house. If we're like, if we're not living together, we're just playing house. This isn't like our place. It's just kind of funny. Cause he, he said he accused her of not being able to compromise. Yeah. And it was her way or bust. And yet. Correct. Every time. It seems to me like he had more of the problems and was less of the compromising type. Well, I think that's that's part of their attraction, is they both are the same way. They're both just stubborn, hard-headed idiots. Yes. Yes. But both likable, though. Yes, yes. It's worth mentioning that at all points in the movie, they're, they're both they're good characters. You can root for them. You know, you don't necessarily want them to break up or, you know, like there's no problem with, with them. They are two peas in a pod. They're both very independent, both very strong individuals. Like Juliet Lewis's character, Jane, is not weak. William Hurt's character, Greg, is not weak. They're they're strong, confident people who are just kind of plowing their way through the world to get what they want. And they're just just Greg wants them to be in their little little bubble together, and she wants two bubbles side by side. Is there not room in this world for both? Yes. So what happens then? How does things escalate after that? Because we have like the floor break. Well, so she's called the cops at some point about three times. Somebody comes into her apartment and knocks her out. After she gets a letter. Okay. So, okay. Before that. Okay. So, okay. So let's backtrack. So she gets, so she, at some point, she'd after she's fallen down the stairs. Yeah, a little bit after that, not necessarily because of that, but a little after that event, she gets a little you know card saying, "I'm sorry, can we have a truce?" Okay, which is more than that downstairs neighbor has done for her. I'll say that she ends up getting a box, a giant package. Del- oh, wait a minute, hold on. I was saying you jumped again. Uh, I'm. I, this is the problem. See, this is why I need to take notes. But it's because of this movie. It's just a, a, it's a slow, very slow building tension. And so all these little things, it's it, the matter, the, the, the order didn't matter. Long story short, she decides because she can't get help from anybody. She wants to sneak into that apartment when no one's there because <laughs> yes, before that. Before that. The next thing the next thing that happened before went crazy was the mice and the insects. You know, I was we absolutely were going to gloss over the exterminator <laughs> and we can't do that. No. So the, she she gets up one day and there's mice all over her apartment. Everywhere. There's flies everywhere. There's maggots coming up out of the drain. A lot of maggots. And it's just like it's pandemonium. So she has to call the exterminator. And the exterminator is Robert Costanza. 
And uh, you may know him as uh, the fat construction guy from Total Recall. You may know him as the fat uh, DC cop guy from Die Hard 2. You may know him as, what, Detective Bullock from Batman, Mask of the Phantasm. He's just just a bit character, a bit actor who just... He's in the movie for all the five minutes, and he's just a wonder. Yeah. He's he's the genuine slice of New York that is squeezed into this this movie. Right. It is funny because, like, everyone else in the movie isn't, like, super New York-y. He brings all of the New York. Yeah, he he makes up for all the rest of them. He really does. And he... I love it. So he, he points out that there's a big hole drilled into the floor where, you know, the mice are being basically pumped into this apartment from below. It's like, hey, you, you, you look at here. You know, this, uh, that's an Albert. I'll buy it. I'm going to do a terrible New York accent, but it talks about there being a, a white lab mouse. That's not, you know, it's not the New York City sewer rat. It's, that's a lab mice. That, that was, came from somewhere else. And then he shows her the hole and he's like, hey, lady, you don't got a rat problem. You got a neighbor problem. And that that was one of my favorite characters in the whole movie. That was just one of my favorite lines in the whole movie. Because it's not even what you say, it's how you say it. And he he said it well. And I think the other thing, too, is like he was the only person that just straight up believed her because he like, you know, did an investigation. He knows his rodents. Yeah. It was like having an actual forensic detective up there. It was beautiful. It was just nice in the, mo- in the middle of the movie to have like someone that believed her and like you know just, saw everything out was just a straight New Yorker to just come on and be like this is this is fucked up. You got a moment of sanity. It was good, you know. It was like it was like a nice drink of cool water on a hot summer day. And then it just dove off the edge. It did. <laughs> so then. So then. So she. So she's. Uh, you know she she uh, goes downstairs and looks out and sees that the lights are off in that in that apartment where they normally are on. So she decides to use the fire escape to kind of crawl in and do some sleuthing. And, you know, she finds predictably disturbing stuff. There's a whole layout of her apartment, including the furniture placement on the ceiling of this apartment. There's packing peanuts everywhere. Uh, there's what, God, what else? There's a map it's, of the building. It's just in really bad shape. Very bad shape. Um, like all the wallpapers torn and, you know, everything's a mess. And yeah, just the fact that like you can see all the holes drilled in the floor where all the, the different areas of the of the house upstairs are. And it's very unsettling. Someone's obviously just been observing her and tormenting her. Like a full-time job. Yeah. Like the, the amount of work and effort for how little she's been there. Like somebody had to drop everything they were doing and essentially focus all their intention on this, which in itself is unnerving. Anyway, while she's in there, you know, she's taking some pictures and the intercom goes off. And she, she also found the typewriter. Oh, she found the typewriter too. They had a, a, a starting of a letter in it. So the source of the annoying, threatening, cryptic letters. So the intercom goes off while she's in there. She decides to answer. It's like, hey, delivery for your upstairs neighbor. Can we just leave it with you? She accepts it. It's basically coffin sized. A giant cardboard box. And she takes it upstairs to her apartment. Which you and I were groaning the entire time. That's the first mistake. That was the first mistake. Why Why the hell would you do that? So she ends up opening it and it's full of packing peanuts. Also, there, there are bags of packing peanuts constantly outside the door of apartment number four on the fourth floor. 
I guess there's just one apartment per, per floor in this building. <clears throat> Hence the clever title of the film. So she opens up this box full of packing peanuts. She stabs at it with a knife and not really finding anything. And she dumps some of it out and then finds, lo and behold, the uh, I'm sorry letter card that she left for the neighbor on the fourth floor, Alice. And she opens it up and, you know, she had written truce question mark. And in typed uh, print, it was a uh, truce accepted. And then it was a couple of pictures of her aunt's dead body at the bottom of the stairwell. Yep. No good. It was very disturbing. So she rounds up her stuff and she's like, all right, I'm going to get out of here. She grabs the letters, grabs the photos. And then somebody breaks into her apartment and knocks her out over the head. And she wakes up in the kitchen with the, well, she'll wake up at the kitchen, but she's left in the kitchen with the stove on. Yeah. Pumping gas into the room. And then we, we cut to her at the hospital. Where her friend from work and, and her boyfriend are there. That was her lawyer. Oh, lawyer from work. I don't think she has any friends. You know what I mean. Associate from work. Her, her It was her lawyer. And uh, who we saw at work earlier because she was talking about trying to press charges or do an investigation. So anyway, so basically she doesn't have any evidence. Her lawyer just isn't giving her any anything to work with there. William Hurt's character, Greg, is very stoic, very, he predominantly plays everything at like a two, occasionally going up to three, once he went up to four for half a second, but generally he's a very calm, very stoic, incredibly, not monotone, but extremely well-composed individual. And in the cab on the way back, leaving the hospital, he's like, hey, you don't have to go back there. You can stay with me. You never have to go in there again. And she goes back to his place, and then she wakes up in the middle of the night and goes back to the building. Where our final confrontation ensues. And we were just like, no, no, no. It's like, no, stop. Don't do it. (laughs) The apartment's not that nice. You've got maggots. She goes back to get her stuff or she just wants to look. She goes back and grabs a crowbar and starts beating on the the door of number four. That's right. So um, Mr. Collins finds her in the hallway beating on the door and he was just like, oh, it's okay. It's okay. And like calmed her down, brought her down to his place, which is the first time we we're finally seeing the inside of it. And it has like a ton of, you know, Egypt and. Middle Eastern kind of relics in it and, you know, posters on the wall or not posters, I guess. Maps. Maps, yeah. Yeah. Maps and architectural drawings of ancient ruins. So they're kind of just chatting and she's venting a little bit of her craziness. And he he believes her, which is a huge relief to her, which inspires her to keep gushing more and more about her rights as, you know, as an apartment owner and everything. And he's... uh, you know, telling her like, yeah, you know, I understand. I believe you. And then he basically, she realized she recognizes something on one of the, uh, maps of an old, uh, I think it was was an Egyptian burial chamber, you know, the portcullis. She saw the, 
the word portcullis in the apartment of number four. Right. On the wall. And she realizes, ooh, the connection. And then she looks up. And Mr. Collins has a gigantic Egyptian cat sculpture and just smashes her over the head with it. Well, she also, though, as she looks up, she sees that there's also writing on the top, on the, the ceiling of his apartment, about the apartment above his. Too little, too late. She discovers who Alice really is. Alice is dead, and he killed her, yep. presumably, because she hasn't, she canceled all, that's a, that's a whole separate side thing, but there, essentially there is no Alice, it was just this guy. Yeah. He killed Alice and embalmed her in his bathtub. Like you do when you're obsessed with Egypt. And I was kind of disappointed when it, we found out it was really him. Because he was completely non-threatening. Which served him well in the beginning of the film. But when when the reveal was that this was our, our villain, he couldn't live up to it. I think it would have made it would have been better if he had had an accomplice and it wasn't just him. I think that's the cuz you're right. He he was just kind of a non-threatening character. He just never he never he not not for lack of effort, but he just didn't have it. It's, it would have been a nice twist for someone else to be involved too. Like Oh sure. Like Martha Stewart. Shelley Duvall's character because I thought she, for sure she was coming back. I, I really did too. I thought she was going to end up having a, a full arc where you, maybe she was Alice. Because, hmm. you know, she really was very controlling and tried to be domineering with who and with uh, who Jane talked to. And See, I thought it was going to be like Jane was going to like almost get away. And then like Martha was going to be there like, like, you know, she thought she was going to help her. And then it yeah. turned out she was in on it. Something like that. Yeah. And it just didn't didn't quite work out that way. And she ends up, uh, long, you know. So after that, it basically just evolves into a fight between her and her and Mr. Collins. And at some point, they make it back to her apartment, where you think she's going to hop on the fire escape and get out, but instead grabs a rolling pin from the kitchen and then screws around, wasting valuable time. And then the scuffle continues as Mr. Collins comes through the fire escape. And then the locksmith guy just shows up out of nowhere to help. Because he's been looking through the window. Through binoculars, mind you. Yeah. Which we we do find out at the end. It is because he is an artist. And he's been drawing things. So he has drawings of all the things she's been looking at and the building and everything. That's how he knew that they were fighting. is because he had been looking, drawing the building. Yeah. And saw the, the fight upstairs. So it goes, you know, what, what, you know, what's life without good neighbors, I guess. And, uh, you know, basically toward the end, uh, William Hurt shows up again, just looking like with his perfect fucking hair and his chiseled jaw, just being like, Gregory, don't. Or whatever Mr. Collins' first name was. Or maybe he didn't call him that. Or maybe Mr. Maybe, Collins said Gregory. Yeah, okay, okay. Yeah. Anyway, he ends up getting shoved off the stairs and falls down the stairwell and goes splat. And that's basically the the film. Uh, so much of it was good. So much of it was good. It kept you guessing. 
who the actual source of the, the issue was in apartment four? Was it Martha? Was it, was it Greg trying to do something to get her to move in with him and dissuade her from living there? Was it the creepy locksmith guy across the way? Was it Jerry the super? It was almost like a game of Clue. The other thing too was like they kept presenting, like typically in a movie like this, they have some like cheap jumps where it's things that uh, just scare you because, you know, something popped out or fell over or whatever. And what I liked about this movie is they built up the tension by keep introducing unsettling people. You know, it, it it built naturally, and not only were you you kept guessing, but then even if it was someone who wasn't the bad guy, they were still unsettling, just by their personality. Yeah, and, and nobody, like like nobody had a clean bill of health in that regard. Even yeah, even the people that okay, these people aren't a threat. They're still you don't want to be around them, and you don't trust them, and they they're still skeezy. Right. You know, essentially, this film is just about having the worst neighbors ever. And this is, it's a great uh, commercial for home ownership. I'll tell you that. And she should have moved out with her boyfriend she, she from the just, beginning. She should. Yeah. You know what, though? But for $400 for that cool apartment, it was at least worth trying. I'm just saying. She could have subletted it. She could have, and she still can. Yeah, I guess. Because she's still on the lease. I just want to know, where where's the landlord in all of this? We never find out who the landlord is. At one point, I thought maybe it would be Mr. Collins. Hmm. Maybe the landlord got killed, too. Maybe. It's hard to say. I mean, what was his eventual goal? They were never quite clear on that. Well, he wanted to get rid of everybody. He did. So it was just his his place. It just didn't seem realistic, though. Yeah, I don't know. Because, I mean, he, he, so he, he took out two neighbors. That's what happens, though, when when things stop making sense. You know, the the insanity that he had. It's like his end game wasn't really a good end game. Uh, it really wasn't. And he was unhinged. Yeah. Uh, considerably. I just... Uh... And, and just to give you an idea, so, so Mr. Collins was played by Austin Pendleton. And... He probably is best known to people as the leader of the military tech group in Short Circuit. And I don't mean the guy who was in Police Academy. I mean the other guy, with the nerdy guy with the glasses. That was this villain. And he was actually more intimidating in Short Circuit, shouting stat at uh, Steve Gutenberg than he was in this. Mm-hmm. And at the end, when he's fighting with Juliette Lewis, you just know, I listen, I've seen a lot of Juliette Lewis movies. She's kind of a bad motherfucker. She would have whooped his ass in real life. He, he didn't have one up on her. And then Tobin Bell, Mr. Jigsaw comes in and he lays him out like a punk with a, with a lamp. Come on. Everything else I could have believed up to that point. The, the neighbor drilling a hole in your floor and letting in rats. You know, the, the, your, your, your associates at work trying to take your job when the slightest thing goes wrong, at, you know, in your personal life. The moody 
uh, well-to-do uh, partner who just wants his way? Um, I, or is it really the $400 a month uh, rent? What really is the most uh, unbelievable portion of this film? Maybe it was just the amount of rent. Sure. So let's talk about uh, let's talk about some of the soundtrack for a minute. There essentially wasn't one, but we did get one L seven song, which I I rather enjoyed. Yeah, there was just suspenseful music in the background throughout. You know the parts that were creepy. Yeah. I just want to point out. So this movie came out in ninety nine, and L seven put out the album Slap Happy in ninety nine. And they opened for ministry in 99, and I saw them in 99. And they were fucking awesome. That was a great show. So for me, that was a highlight of this film when I got to hear an L7 song. And it's not the first time Juliette Lewis has had an L7 song play in one of her movies. Hmm. Uh, they played uh, L7 uh, Shit List, or is it, yeah, Shit List, in uh, one of the opening scenes of Natural Born Killers. Hmm. She puts it on the jukebox. Right before her and uh, Mickey start killing everybody. Good film. Maybe she requested it. Maybe she did. I'm just saying, even even Viggo Mortensen, Mr. Lord of the Rings, huge L7 fan and friend of the band. Hmm. Good stuff. And that's completely beside the point. But it was a, it was a fun part, you know. Yeah. It just it just ah the '90s, good times. All right. Uh, any other thoughts? Oh, I know. Here we go. So let's talk about a uh, best performance of the film. Okay. Uh, Juliet Lewis absolutely rocked this. Yeah. I don't know of any, I don't know of any film that she's, uh, I have not seen any other films that she's been the star of. She's always in a, a supporting role or co-starring in some fashion. Now, like in the case with Natural Born Killers, she's very high up there. Like she's right up there with, uh, oh, what's his name? I can't remember his name. But the other guy. Vigo? What? No, what? Vigo Mortensen? No, 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 no. In Natural Born Killers. Um, oh, I have no idea. What the hell is his name? He was in Cheers. Ted Danson? <laughs> no, the other guy. <laughs> the blonde one. I could probably look it up right uh, now. but Woody Harrelson? Yeah, Woody Harrelson. Yeah, okay. So, you know, so her, her and Woody Harrelson were right at, you know, got top billing in that film and top starring. She was also in um, Way of the Gun. She's in Romeo's Bleeding, California, spelled with a K. Just has done a, just a ton of movies. And all of them are good. I've never seen Juliette Lewis in a bad movie. Mm-hmm. And it was great to see her just take the helm and just star in something for once. Yeah. So that was really a treat. William Hurt, I could have t- take, taken or li- I could have taken him or left him. He wasn't he wasn't perfect for this role, I think. He was super underutilized. I think you needed to have someone who had a little more charm for that role. Oh, that's a good point. He was not very charming for this. He was I mean, he seemed very businesslike. You know, he was good in that as far as like a serious adult kind of thing. So it was good in that regard, but I think you needed just someone with a little more pizzazz, you know, more yeah. like the showman kind of thing. There's that, but also a little more warm <laughs> thing. Thing with William Hurt is he's a top caliber actor and he was just 
just regardless of how he played the role, he was just underutilized. On all the poster art, he's, you know, it's Juliet Lewis and William Hurt. He's not in the movie that much. Yeah. He's not in it half as much as, as Juliet Lewis is. Yeah. I mean, she is, we see the movie 99% through her eyes, basically. Yeah. And maybe 10% through his. Yeah. And just anybody could have played that role, really. Like, that didn't need to go to him. Yeah. So, I don't, I don't know. It make, kind of makes you wonder, like, was he doing somebody a favor? Did it just seem like a good, did he just like the film? Did he just want to work with Shelley Duvall? Who knows? Mm. I, mean, I think it was a strong concept, so maybe just, you know, it was a good read-through. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, may, I don't know. Maybe he just liked the script and just wanted to be a part of it. Yeah. But it definitely wasn't uh, what you would... It's The role he played was not worthy of his stature at that time, is just all I'm trying to say. Now, what about... Oh, man. Tobin Bell, I think we talked about. Yep. Not in the movie very much, but awesome all the way through. Yep. Artie Lang was just a hot mess like he always is. So he did great. Yeah, no no bad actors. Yeah. Just a couple, couple underutilized ones. Yep, agreed. Well, Ken, do you think this film has uh, met our three primary criteria? Was it well written? Was it well acted? Was it well produced? Um. Yeah, I guess, can we talk about the produced part of it? Yeah, let's talk about the produced part of it. So, it's it's all on location. I'm assuming this is all the real place. Uh, kind of hard to find out because they don't really tell you anywhere on the internet. Yeah, we couldn't yeah, we couldn't figure out anything. There's like no information about this movie anywhere. One thing one thing I have I have learned so many of the the sets where it takes place inside of a building like that, it's almost always a soundstage. Yeah. They had like the stairwell, you know, in the exterior of the building. Um, yeah, th- those may have well been filmed on location, but it definitely wouldn't You're not, probably right. Definitely wouldn't have been a complicated set by any means. Yeah. So it was very well shot. Uh, they made good use of like light and darkness um, in, in several different places. And the cinematography is great. It really does set the mood. They integrate well. the city into kind of the beginning part of it where you feel kind of like the long shots of New York and different places. And then those kind of fade away throughout the movie where it almost starts getting claustrophobic that we're just in this house. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it really, yeah, and her world definitely gets smaller too. Mm-hmm. Cause even when she's in the city later on, it's always in close up. Mm hmm. There's a lot fewer established. I, I know at one point, maybe halfway through the film, they threw an establishing shot of the Statue of Liberty. Mm-hmm. And just to remind you, oh, that's where you are. Because it would have been a while and you kind of forgotten about it. Yeah. And then after that, you don't really see the city much anymore till the very end mm-hmm. when she's out of this situation. So I just thought it was good. You know, it was almost like a funnel that was just pushing us towards this confined, you know, claustrophobic situation. Oh, absolutely. So anyway. Yeah, yeah they, no, they really did do a good job with that. That was good. Uh, I think the writing was good. Uh, so, yeah, well produced. I think I think well acted. I think with a, a couple little tweaks, it could have been a bigger, you know, film. Uh, we did find out that this was never released box office in the United States. This was a direct-to-video release, which kind of blows my mind. It's definitely not a direct-to-video production. Like it's they did not. not intend on that. This is like a, a, a I know 
technically movie is a movie, but this was filmed with the intention to be a released movie. In 1999, direct-to-video meant direct-to-video cassette and maybe DVD if you were lucky. Yeah. At Blockbuster. And there's only uh, 4,000 ratings for this on IMDb. Mm-hmm. So not very many people have seen this. And there is so little literature out there about this film. It really is a lost film, for, and it has so many great people in it. And it was made with, with care, you know? It was made in a very conscious way. It was the uh, directorial debut of uh, John Klausner, who also wrote it, and uh, he did. Uh, he wrote Wonderland, and he wrote Date Night. Uh, he was a second unit director on something about Mary. He was a writer on Shrek Forever After. So I mean, he, the guy's had some good credits, and he's had some good work long after this film was made. So anyway, mm-hmm. that's just you know, I, I would definitely highlight those things as far as. I think that that also stood out about the movie. It was very, very well put together. Maybe they could have made a few little tweaks with maybe some writing elements um, and not using some characters enough, I think. It's not a perfect movie, that's for sure. But it's definitely an enjoyable one. Yeah. It, It did keep me in suspense. So that's, for a movie like this, that's the highest praise, really, you could give it. All right. I think that answers our question. It does meet the three primary criteria. Maybe not uh, overwhelmingly, but uh, certainly it hits the mark. It's, yeah, competent in all regards. A serviceable effort and mildly enjoyable. Like if you draw that line right down the middle, like, you know, from really great to really bad and you draw right in the middle, it was on the good side of that. It was over 50% good. Yes. Yes. I'd say 75, 80. Yeah. If I had to put a number on it. Well, that is a wrap for tonight's episode here at the O&M Stockroom. We're your hosts, Brian McGarry. And Ken O'Malley. If you enjoyed this segment of Complimentary Cinema, more episodes can be found at omstockroom.com, along with links to our Patreon page and various streaming outlets. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back next Wednesday with an all-new episode.